welcome back to Famous People You've Never Heard Of. Today's audio drama is a solo play first performed by Chris Harris all about an extremely famous fictional person you've never heard of. This person is no less than the first recurring character in a comic strip magazine. Yes, before the Beano, Dandy and Marvel comics, there was the Half Holiday. And before Andy Cap, Lord Snooty and Spider-Man, there was Ali Sloper, who is keen to make your acquaintance. Blue Fire Theatre Company presents Steve Taylor in Ali Sloper's Half Holiday. And in the Commons today, the Chancellor said income tax is to be increased to four pence in the pound. June 22nd, 1897, will be Jubilee Day. According to Alice Sloper's Half Holiday, a periodical of the popular press, the climax of the celebrations will be a visit by Her Imperial Majesty to 99 Shoe Lane, the Sloperies. No other papers carry the story, and a Buckingham Palace spokesman refused to comment. In the House today, Lord Salisbury made it clear that the outbreak of rabies on the Isle of Wight... You are here this evening to witness the historic meeting between Her Imperial Majesty, the Queen Empress Victoria, and yours truly, Alice Sloper. Alice Sloper, friend of man, MFKOMIE, most frequently kicked out man in Europe, journalist and managing editor of The Arf Holiday, the Sloperies, 99 Shoe Lane, also of Mildew Court. The Arf Holiday. If the Times is the Thunderer, then the Arf Holiday is the Rasper. One of the nation's most influential periodicals. On sale throughout the Empire, with the exception of Sarawak and Botswana land, of course. Now, the old point of this evening's command performance, this little concert or soiree, is that it represents the fulfilment of my aspirations, the peak, my arrival in society with a big S. And to mark the occasion... I have perfected an entertainment. You may call it a party piece. But if Sir Henry Irving, Dame Nellie Melba and Paganini can do it, then why not Alice Sloper? You see before you a fortunate man. A man who, through the good offices of a true friend, the Duke Snook, can now expect to rise above the station of his birth. At the beginning of this jubilee year, I had no more idea of how to achieve those aspirations, which I have nourished in me art from my infancy, than what I had of flying to the moon. Twas but a chance meeting with a duke in a pawn shop what opened all the doors in the social calendar, what put my feet ever surer on the stepping stones to fame, success, and my proper place in the establishment. I admit it. I am a social climber. Wisteria to my friends. <laughs> I mean, haven't you ever felt that you were born for better things? I mean, be honest, haven't you? Haven't you ever looked at yourself in the mirror and thought just how well a coronet would look on that noble brow? Well, why then not me? Haven't you sometimes felt that others don't appreciate or show proper respect for that true greatness which you know lies within you? I know I have. I mean, I've always known I had an expensive taste. You know, aspidistra in the window. I mean, my hands are not workers' hands. They're sensitive and delicate, meant for gestures of authority and the distribution of largesse. The condescending wave. Today marks the pinnacle, 
the acceptance by all, the day A. Sloper came out of the closet of obscurity into the blinding light of nobility. The problem is, the old Queen's not here yet. Now, I, I realise that the comings and goings and little doings of people like me are an endless fascination to people like you. So I'll take you through the social calendar. The Duke led me through the extraordinary intricacies of the social calendar for a very reasonable price. That yearly ritual when the cream of society struts its wares at all the best events. Henley, Hascott, the right place at the right time. That's what it's all about. And as we have got a bit of time, let me take you through the social calendar. The year of a sloper. Now, the season begins with the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. Shh! Don't make too much noise. The Royal Academy. Remember. Control. Look. Mark. Learn. A cultural blowout. Mind you, what they see in this stuff, God only knows. Anyone could do this. We do better at the half-holiday. Still, mustn't show it. The Sloper entourage have joined me on my excursion into this world of culture, and there's the Duke, Tutsi, and Ike. This is it. The private view of the Royal Academy of Summer Exhibition. This is where it all begins. Marks the start of the social calendar. If you're not here, then you're nowhere. So you have got to be here. Being seen to be here. Morning, Bertie. HRH to you, of course. Friends, can't beat him, can you? Take the Duke now. A true aristocrat to the end of his uter. So well turned out. Frequently. So elegant. His clothes fit so well he's nowhere to carry his wallet. Such style. It's the inbreeding, you know. Can't beat it. You can see it in his eyes, the way they look at each other. He's in Debrett's. If I don't get the sloper name into Debrett's, then I'm a Dutchman. Mind, I always thought Debrett sounded like a Dutchman. You should study the peerage. It's the best thing in fiction the English have ever done. We get into the academy through the sloper all-purpose visiting card, the freeloader's passport, all the drink you can sup, and no limit provided you look interested in the paintings. And take this one, the old Mona Lisa. Bertie brought this back after the weekend in the Louvre. Yeah, he loves this one, Mona Lisa. The way that the eyes follow you. No matter where you go, she's always looking at you. Creepy, really. Mona Lisa... She was a debutante last year at a coming-out party. She didn't make it. Of course, nobody comes to the Royal Academy to look at the pictures, do they? I mean, they'll buy pictures, but they won't look at them. Haven't the time. Too busy seeing who's there, who's with who, who's passing notes to who, eyeing up the ladies, seeing what's coming out this season. And quite a lot, from the look of it. <laughs> I mean... Bertie now, HRH to you. Betty could describe Mrs. Langtree's dress down to the last button. But has he seen what Lancia's been up to, or Rossetti, or Bourne Jones? As he bubbles as like. The subjects, I mean. Nothing but live deer, dead birds, and Nancy boys. I mean, look at it. Love's locked out. I wouldn't have let him in for a start. Not looking is an art in itself. <laughs> That's the sort of thing I'm here to learn. She's still looking at me. Oh, she's looking at Bertie now. 
Take this one, the Venus de Milo. That's what comes of biting your nails. She used to have arms, you know. Nobody took a blind bit of notice until Nora Bartlett, the cleaner, knocked it over one day while dusting. Masterpiece now. Carry on like this and it'll end up a bust. <laughs> Nearly bust already. Still looking at me. This is the one, though, my favourite. Monarch of the Glen. Nature in all its glory. Representing all that's great in England. Marvellous how he just caught Muswell Hill in all its splendour. The stag was cooperative. Never moved for two days while he painted it. Mind you, it got hungry, but old Lancier kept slipping it some grass and the odd lump of sugar. Kept it happy. Marvellous beast. You can still see it. Stuck on a shield in the British Museum. Mind you, one place where the horse still reigns supreme is racing. I mean, can you imagine bikes racing? Or cars? Motor cars racing? No. Now, a day at the races means horses. A nice day out for everybody. But for the social climber, the ascender of heights, Mr A. Sloper, only one race is good enough, and that's Ascot. Royal Ascot. Well, let's be honest. The Derby just doesn't make it. The commoners' race. Royal Ascot is exclusive to us knobs. To get into the royal enclosure is a great honour. It means you've arrived. Well, you're on your way. Well, the Duke said he'd fix me with a ticket. He's got class. Very reasonable, too. So I brush down the old brolly, draws up on my extensive wardrobe, and prepares to saunter off to the royal races. I pops into Hascot Station to see the royal couple arrive. You see, Bertie's got this horse, persimmon, running in the gold cup. Well, down they comes. I tell you, when that Princess Alex gets down off that railway train with the smoke and the steam billowing all around her like she was a goddess, proper little darling, sends a shiver up your sloper. She's wearing this gown, silk I think it is, with this bit of lace and these flounces. I say wearing, looks like she's been poured into it from a great height and parts of her are fighting to get out. So that's what they mean by the royal pair. <laughs> A flash of the freeloaders pass and I'm in. The royal enclosure. Ooh, it's heaving. I gets myself tucked in under the armpit of this huge woman with a parasol and halitosis who says she's the Duchess of Dagenham. I looks down the court. What a sight. Amidst the teeming throng you can see this moving bit of colour coming through the gates at the end of the new mile. The royal cavalcade sweeping up the course, coming at a fair trot. All heads uncovered at a stroke, and there's that many bald heads glinting in the sun, it looks like a thousand heliographs signaling welcome. The royal huntsman and the whippers in jogs, splendid at the front. Then the royal master of the buckhounds, the Earl of Coventry, in his full regalia, with his silver spurs and his nose stuck up in the air like one of the royal huntsman's horses has farted. Behind him, there's the outriders and the state Landau with the royal pair. Still not burst out of that bodice, mind. Every throat starts a cheering and a cheering, and before you can say horses doovers, the prince, the princess, and the royal pair is in the enclosure, with me. I decided to pop to the paddock and have a peek at the ponies. My life! Trust old Ike. Back the prince's horse. Do me a favour and put your money on persimmon. 
The others smothers. Last time they was out, they started at ten to one. Didn't get back till half past four. Stick to persimmon and trust Ikey. They're under Starther's orders. There's little jockey Watts got up so grand in the purple and gold braid of the prince's colours with the scarlet sleeves and the black velvet cap with gold fringing. Looks like an organ grinder's monkey, but a clever little horseman. They're off. Look at them go. Hang them out. Persimmons at the back, trailing behind. Fourth out of four. Oh, give him the stick, Watts, eh? Round this windy bend, past the Ascot Hotel. Get him moving. What are you doing, you useless little irk? There's a lot of punters in a sweat, I can tell you. There'll be a lot of unpaid rents this month if that pair don't start running. Look at the bookies, laughing and joking about like kids let out of school. Kick him, Watsy! Bludgeon the brute! What a rotten jockey. What a dead loss of an horse. Tear up that ticket. Why don't you ride him straight to the knacker's yard? Sell him to the dog's home. What a load of... Shh. Hang on. Last bend. Ooh, he's off. He's going. Jockey Watts is giving him the rein and old Purse is off like he's got a battery of rockets up his jacksy. Can't see him for flying turf. He's in front. Two lengths. Four. Six. Careful. Be careful, don't fall. He's done it. He's done it. Eight flipping lengths. <laughs> what a scene there is. The crowd are going mad. Talk about a yell and bellow. They're nearly pulling Jockey Watts to pieces, shaking his hand and patting the horse's head. Now the prince has come down, and they're shaking the horse's hoof and patting Wattsy on the head, and everyone sings God bless the Prince of Wales seventeen times. Pity the old queen wasn't there to see it. About June, I'm beginning to wonder, to worry a bit. There's very little in the way of invites. Are the royals even aware of my existence? Is this not to be the year of Ali Sloper after all? Very likely. I hold a council of war meeting with the Duke, having stood him a night out at the theatre, followed by supper at the Café Royal. Yeah, says the Duke. Pardon? Yeah. I think the Duke's thought of something. He was a man of few words. Mind, he only knows a few. Nice to hear them again, though. What? And I knew what he meant. Why don't I stand for Parliament? I can go, sir. Where? Lenzana. Where's that? No, Lenzana. Sort of the reddish, what? Of course, Duke, a tenor. No problem. So... I'm to be Alice Sloper, M.P. Hmm. Mind you, it's only the commons. But do for a lark while waiting to be elevated to the ermine and coronet, your lords. True to his word, the Duke takes me off to address the committee in Bloomsbury. Funny district. You'll not find much to take your fancy around there. All brogues, heavy tweeds and beards. And the men are no better. A lot of Ineffectuals, ridicules, lot of revolutionists, what says we come from monkeys. Can't say it myself. I mean, if we'd the knack of swinging in trees, why did we lose it? Hardly progress, is it? I mean, think what a bonus it would be for the boat race and the January sales. Well, we gets there, 
big house, and we knock. My dardooth nook. She's eight foot tall if she's an inch, and as shapely as a rolled up carpet with somebody else's teeth in. So splendid of you to spare us some time. Do come through to the sun room. You must be Mr. Sloper. The dear Duke's told me so much about you. A real working man. And she's shaking me hand like she's trying to get a bucket of water out of me armpit. Let me introduce you. And she leads me through to the sun room. Must get a sun room fitted at Mildew Court. A cup of Earl Grey and some sesame seed cake. Sesame seed cake? Oh, thanks. May I introduce Mr. Huxley? How do you do, Squire? Mr. William Morris, the artist, and this is Mr. Swinburne and Mr. Sewell. Hmm? Mr. George Bernard Sewell. Ah, right. Sewell. <laughs> yes, silly of me. And he looks at me, this Sewell fella, obviously totally overawed. Ladies and gentlemen, great tides are in motion. Great winds are sweeping the cobwebs from the befuddled brains of the bourgeoisie. Yah, yah. Well said. Great changes are imminent. The volcanoes erupting. The ground beneath our feet quivers. The faceless backs of the working people have been too long upon their hands and their knees. It's their turn. Yah, yah. Well said. Their turn to take their places. To take their share of the power. Bravo. This may not be a promising position. He says, looking at me, but beginning it is to be sure, and it is for us to embrace the working man and tell him what we want him to do. I'd like to introduce you to our new parliamentary candidate. I give you Mr... Mr... Damn, where's that paper? Mr Eli Slopper, who will give us a short address. 99 Shoe Lane. Show us your manifesto. Give him the speech. Ladies and gentlemen... I have come before you as your new parliamentary candidate. My politics are as follows. 1. I am strongly in the favour of the bill for the lighting of villages by their own sewer gas. I want bigger and better sixpennyworths of cod at the fish shop, and this would help the floundering fish industry into fine fettle. And now, a little about the government's mean-minded measures to tax the amber nectar, the liquid of the gods, ale and beer. You are probably thinking, if they tax that, then what next? I support the freedom of the press. The off holiday shall become compulsory reading. On the subject of emancipation for women, a queen is all right. But a female politician? No, I'm sorry. The mind would wander too much. Too much set in their ways. In leaving my return in your hands, I beg you, Go boldly to the polls as often as you can without detection and inscribe that cross opposite the name of your obedient servant, Ali Slooper, friend of man. I thank you. Now, any questions? What about defence? Well, knock it down and build a brick wall. The economic climate? Wet and windy. The Russian question? Hmm. Load of Balkans. What do I think of the penal system? Mm, it will never replace the Balkans. You'll be amazed to hear that I was not adopted as their candidate. Jealousy was the reason. The friend of man was just too much for them. Stands out a mile. Fabians. Anyway, 
Royalty doesn't get involved in politics unless your name's Disraeli. But you have to do something to improve yourself. Tennis, you say? Don't mention tennis. The very word brings back memories of a nightmare. It was a balmy day in Wimbledon. Just when I think that I'm making a breakthrough, the Duke's really pleased with me. Says, I have what it takes. Breeding, influence, manners. Now, this has to happen. Just look at her. Mrs. Slooper. Drunk in charge of her racket. Her desire for exercise and fluid movement never usually got further than a walk to the off-license. Tennis. Bottle in one hand, racket in the other, and spark out. Game, set, and match. So, I stand in. I wasn't ready. She couldn't have done this anyway. No class. Tennis is for knobs. The game of kings. Fifteen, love. Kings virtually invented it. Been around years. Jeu de Pomme, it was called in France. The pastime of monarchs and aristocrats. Mine, they didn't use rackets. Oh, no. Just their ends. And it hurt. Thirty, love. Why not use a piece of wood, some clever sod said. Good idea. So they cut a hole in it and sewed it up with catgut and tennis had arrived. Forty, love. Your royals loved it. Henry VIII had a wicked overhead chop. When he got the energy, couldn't leave it alone. Forty, fifteen? Played indoors as well. Mrs. Sloper tried that. Mind you, 99 Shoe Lane is not the same as Hampton Court. Broke two tea sets, four milk jugs and a whatnot. Gay. Tennis. It's a rotten game. Had its day. It's dead as far as I can see. A dodo game. Come on. Wimbledon. Home of the All England Tennis and Croquet Club. A more unlikely marrying of sports you couldn't wish for. The Mallets and Rackets Brigade. Won't last, of course. Well, croquet will. But tennis won't. It's got no spectator value. You're forever picking up balls. No flow. No money. And onwards to Jubilee Day. Do you know she's 77? The hands she has shook this year. The people she has entertained from all the corners of the globe. The meals she has had to eat. Frog's legs from France. Pizza from Pisa. Wallaby steaks from Walkerville. Chow mein from China. Chapatis from Jaipur. And bicarbonate of soda from Boots. What a day it was. Never seen anything like it. You should have been there. For this one day, the social calendar came to a halt. It's everyone's day. The Empire, displaying its feathers in the biggest and most costly gathering the human race has ever seen. A family. It might have started up by accident, in a fit of absent-mindedness, as someone once said, with a scattering of trading posts and bits and pieces. But it's got a pattern to it now, all right. Look at any map. More than a quarter of God's green earth coloured with the flags of the red, white and blue. And that's a third of its people. Four hundred million of them having one great street party for the Queen Empress's Jubilee. Sixty years, eh? London has been like a fairground for days and nights. 
There are that many races and colours and creeds and costumes. There's eleven prime ministers putting up at the Cecil. There's an encampment as big as a market town at Chelsea, full of troops and commissioners from all corners of the empire. There's Nellie Melba belting it out at the opera, and Nellie Power belting it out at the music hall. An imperial fete in Regent's Park, an imperial ballet at Her Majesty's. Then it happens. It's finally here. Tuesday morning, the day itself. The guns firing and the bells are ringing from daybreak to breakfast time, and an ocean of people pouring into the streets and swelling in great waves along the way. And here they come. 50,000 fighting men who Field Marshal Lord Roberts of Kandahar, good old Bob's riding at the front. Even his horse is covered in medals. There's Australian dragoons, Canadian hussars, carabinier from Natal, and camel cavalry from Egypt. There's 39 Indian potentates riding three abreast, and every one of the sepoy officers is a prince in his own right and dresses accordingly. Troops of all colours and cuts in uniforms of all cuts and colours, bearing every weapon of destruction ever dreamed of, from the latest guns of the horse artillery to spears, cudgels and blowpipes. What a sight! Ashanti, Rhodesia, Basutuland, Somaliland, Myasaland, Uganda, Zanzibar, India, Hong Kong, Papua, Tasmania, Gilbert Islands, Bermuda, Bahamas, Barbados, Tobago, Trinidad, Canada, the Falkland Islands and countless others. Places you've never even heard of. Sun never sets, eh? Jamaicans in spanking whites. The Gurkhas like a bunch of terriers, feared of nothing. Of course, the froggies and krauts are in there too, smiling sweetly and looking daggers. The papal nuncios sharing a carriage with the Emperor of China's man. Wonder what they're talking about. One name on everyone's lips, the Queen. And we're all cheering and laughing and shouting and crying, all at once and running alongside the procession, because we don't ever want it to have passed us by and be over. Up Fleet Street. Look, there's the old lads of the Light Brigade up at that window. God bless you, old fellows, you've done your bit. And the clergy, fluttering on the steps of old St Paul's, like a thousand penguins let out of the zoo. And there's drums, the bands, and the bells ringing like to fetch the steeples down. Flags everywhere, and hundreds of thousands of Union Jacks blown in the summer breeze on flagpoles hanging from windows held high by big buck colour sergeants, proud as punch, and their faces scarlet as their tunics in the desert wars. Flags flutter in the hands of countless kids let off from school to wish the old queen godspeed. Then she's arrived. You know it from the roar that's rolling towards us. She's here. People are going mad. The noise is deafening. I'm jumping up and down, but I still can't see her. Is it her? Well, shift your head. And then, bang! All I saw was a shower of stars. They told me at the infirmary that a flagpole fell and hit me on the head. Never saw her. She was there, and I was there. But I never saw her. Just stars. Hmm. <laughs> Might as well have stopped at home. I mean, the Queen herself was the real procession. All the rest was just embroidery.
and I, Mister. Anyway, after the excitement of the Jubilee, we knobs needed a change of pace, a slowing down, a return to the graciousness, and nowhere achieved that more surely than the oasis of peace and tranquillity, that Shangri-La of the social calendar, Henley. Summer without Henley is as unthinkable to a British upper classes as Ascot without horses, or Buckhouse without a monarch. Henley. You see, you're protected from the hoi polloi, like at Ascot. You've got the royal enclosure, so at Henley, you've got your rowing club lawns, manicured like billiard tabletops over 70 years. Not a weed in sight. It's your elegance, your alfresco bun fight. The climax of the picnicker's diary, given the weather, and I don't give a lot for it myself. This is paradise. Of course, a lot go for the orgy of oars. Not for me, though. Not for me. The grade three war wound wouldn't allow that. Still, you don't want to hear about that, I'm sure. I believe few people have the courage to admit it, but unless one is obviously enthusiastic on the subject of rowing, or had a brother, cousin, or lover contesting in the singles, fours, eights, or the coxless pairs. The mere racing at the Great Water Carnival of Henley is about as dull as a box of dead kippers. No, it's your picnic. That's what they go for. The possibility of flirtation, moonlit water excursions, snug little lunches. This is what it's about. Mingling. Tinkering. Ah, yes. The picnic. Ham sandwiches, potted meat sandwiches, tongue sandwiches in triangles, crescent egg sandwiches in squares, game sandwiches, a collation of salad, lobster, cold duck, sardines, a cake, and a couple of bottles of Bollinger cooling in the shadows. And your boiled egg. One word of warning. Beware the garlic of the upper-class sandwich, an article which offends the bowels of unaccustomed Brits, and hooters of everyone else. Another thing, watch your manners. Don't tuck your napkin under the chin or lay it on your belly. Bibs and tuckers are for the nursery. Don't make too much noise with your cutlery. In dealing with bread, break it with your fingers. Don't use a knife and fork. Remember the story of the absent-minded and short-sighted prelate who, with the remark, my bread, I think, dug his fork into the right hand of the lady sitting beside him. If you've got a moustache, don't strain your soup through it. Don't slurp and gargle soup. With soup, use the soup tilt protocol. And when the waiter asks you if you'd like some more, remember to say no. Don't masticate with your mouth open and don't talk with food or drink in your mouth. A blockage in the gullet, a choke, could result in a dreadful display of pebble dashing. Don't fish about in the sauce boat. It's not an angling contest. Getting rid of grape pips can be a problem. Blowing them straight onto the plate is dangerous. You can get a nasty ricochet which could blind the cat if she's looking your way. You should take them out singly with the forefinger curl action. Remember, in the art of gentility, manners maketh the man. Like Henley, the other oasis of joy is Lords and the cricket. But you know my personal views on cricket. No, I'm sorry. I'll never forget the last time the Duke asked me to play. Got this friend of his to teach me, 
Big fella, beard, stethoscope round his neck. You should have been there. Grace? What sort of man is called Grace? Oh, W.G. <laughs> Dr. W.G. Grace. He's come to teach me. Develops character, pluck and determination, self-control and public spirit. Gentlemanly sport. Played at Eton and Harrow, so say no more. Apparently, the first thing is you come to the wicket and take guard and address the ball. Hello, little ball. Standing around and about me are all these other men looking at me. The bloke up the other end is a bowler, and he's going to send one down. And I have to try and hit it whilst the bloke behind me with the big hands is going to knock my bales off if I miss it and overstep the crease. He's the wicketkeeper and wears big gloves and big pads on his legs and a box, which looks very uncomfortable. The bowler rubs the lump of leather on his crotch, apparently to give it some spin. He says he's going to do a googly. I mean, couldn't he have done one before he started? Apparently he could have done a twister, a yorker or a spin, but chose to do a googly. I just hope he clears it up. I try and hit it and told to go for a single. I could have gone for a four or a six. The bowler chucks six balls and then everyone else changes round. If the bowler hits the wickets, the umpires stick his finger up. Every one of the eleven comes out of the pavilion, comes in and goes out. And then those that have been out, standing around, go in. And the others come out and stand around. And then the others, now inside, come outside and try to stay in longer than those who are out, but have already been in. If those in get more than those that were out, they win. And then they all go back in for a cup of tea and sandwiches. What a load of googlies. As I staggers out of Lord's Cricket Ground, I begin to think people are saying, Sloper won't make it. The cheek. The Duke is doing his best. He tried to get me an invite for a weekend at Blenheim. As a country house, you know. Duke of Marlborough's pile. Lovely place nestling in the bosom of beautiful rural Hertfordshire. An improvement on mildew towers and my little pile set in beautiful rural Battersea. Even the forget-me-nots forget what they're there for. As for the begonias, they've begun. It would have been marvellous, the country house weekend. More like a hotel, but with waiters, butlers, nannies, maids, footmen, flunkies, cooks, coachmen, gamekeepers, tweenies, wife-swapping, all the trappings of class, men in gold, orchids on the table, ptarmigan and champagne, tip-tree jam, cotton sheets. Scented soap, hot water, flush toilets, and deviled sandwiches. I bet you need a flush toilet with a deviled sandwich. Do you know, at Woburn, each guest has his own personal footman behind his chair at dinner. Sealing wax in each bedroom. Why? Blenheim Palace. Hmm. Big difference from where I ended up. Seaview Guesthouse in Margate. Still... It takes some beating, though. For one weekend, I went mad. I forgot the social calendar and let myself go. I left the office at Saturday lunchtime, Poets' Day, push off early tomorrow's Sunday. The half-holiday had begun. Playtime. R and R. Relief and release from the treadmill of life. Ah, the seaside.
a world of wonder where dreams come true. But can you stand the strain? After a night of sampling sin and wallowing in what's to be had, from bottles of this to barrels of that, and you wake up in the morning with somebody else's head on and a mouth full of loofers. In your comfy little room at the Seaview guest house, you lay there, listening to the quaint quietness of seaside mornings, the gentle babble of the porters at the abattoir, the jolly bantering coke shovelers in the gasworks next door, and all those seagulls. And you think, never again, never, never, never again. But it wasn't just booze and beastliness. I met her, she, this beautiful girl, devastating yet demure, so proud yet full of promise. I can't remember where we met. I know I'd had a few by then. The pier, yes, the pier. There she was, slender as a willow by the slot machines, the setting sun wreathing her in flame, her soft fair hair blowing gently over her face, her figure like Venus with all the trimmings. Ah, did we meet only to part? Were we but ships that pass? I must find her. Seek her out and see her again. Get to know her. Who is she? Where is she? Will we meet, or will she remain a phantom, a will-o'-the-wisp, a girl of my dreams? A restorative pint of Winkles was creeping over me that Sunday evening. You see, for the knobs, there's no Monday. Every day is a half-holiday, and it doesn't matter what time of year it is. The social calendar tells him what to do. After the clear blue skies and blazing sun of the English summer, July 23rd, I think it was, autumn begins to fall with leafy footsteps. The smell of smoke in the crisp air. Season of mists and conkers everywhere. The hunting season has arrived. The hounds are raring to go and your knob is in the pink. And the wily old Monsieur Renard is ready to give them all a run for their money. You see, for your knob, your gent, your toff, your masher. He's got that air about him. Sanji Freud. I don't know what it is, but he's got it. Wherever he is, never falters or flickers, never raises his voice, never puts himself out, never doubts for one minute his God-given rights. Hmm? Oh, hang on a minute. <sighs> I've just heard she's not coming. Just wait till I see Bertie. He'll be furious. Me with a grade three war wound and all. A war veteran. He'll understand the pain and the hurt. The half-holiday will carry the story, don't you worry. An expose. Banner headline stuff. An exclusive. It won't go unnoticed. Queen betrays loyal subject. A nation mourns. Muffled bells will tell the sad story. Big Ben will be silenced. People will stand for a two-minute, nay, three-minute silence. The mighty roar of London will be stopped. Sloper, they'll say. Oh, yes, I remember him, a true patriot. Blue blood in his veins, and beer. What will we do now that he's gone? The half-holiday will carry the obituary. A loyal subject of bastion strength. 
Ali Sloper, friend of man, the social calendar beat him and flushed him down the pan. For when that one great scorer comes to write against your name, he remarks not that you lost or won, but how you played the game. Ali Sloper's Half Holiday was written by Chris Harris and Chris Dennis. Steve Taylor was Ali Sloper. Studio production and editing was by Harry Jacobs, with music by James Hall. Thank you for listening to Famous People You've Never Heard Of. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do please subscribe or follow us so that you don't miss an episode and we get a little more visibility. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>